Hi, everybody. It's Bean, and welcome to an all-new episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Wishing you a happy Weedness Day if you're listening to this episode on the day it was released, and reminding you that, of course, every day is Weedness Day, as long as you got some weed. I'm incredibly excited to share this Weeds episode with you all, because we are going to once and for all answer the question, can hemp save the world? Spoiler alert, yes it can, and I say that with confidence after speaking with our guest today, who is someone who has fully envisioned a hempy future for humanity, one where the cannabis plant in all forms helps us to decentralize and relocalize our energy production, our economic systems, our ecology, and our connection to Mother Earth. If you're thinking we must be talking with the man Jack Herrer rhymes with terror, the emperor himself, I've got some unfortunate news for you, which is that he passed away quite a few years ago. The good news is we do have an entire episode of Great Moments in Weed History in the archive called Jack Herrer Green Pilled the World. So if you know the man or you know the strain, but you don't know the story, please, please go back and listen to that one. It was recorded live in Los Angeles, definitely a favorite. But today, we are going to talk with one and only living legend, Doug Fine. He's a friend of the podcast, a friend of mine, and a self-described solar-powered goat herder, a comedic investigative journalist, and a leading advocate for regenerative farming in all forms, including, of course, cannabis slash hemp. Doug's books, and tell me if you detect a pattern here, include American Hemp Farmer, his latest, Hemp Bound, the book in which he outlined this vision of a hemp-powered future for the world, an excellent book called Too High to Fail, that was one of the first uh, comprehensive looks at the new legal weed economy, and a uh, bestseller called Farewell My Subaru that is fun and funny and informative, and they're all worth giving a read. Even more exciting is the fact that when it comes to hemp farming, Doug doesn't just talk the talk, he stalks the stalk. Hemp stalks, that is. We are talking about propaganda by the deed, or maybe propaganda by the seed, because as you're going to hear, Doug is talking to us live and direct from his family farm off the grid in New Mexico, where he raises goats and grows hemp, and uh, he even teaches from there an online course called Regenerative Hemp, from soil to seed to sales. So if you find yourself inspired to go out and say hemp, hemp, hooray, and get into the uh, hemp growing world yourself, he can guide you through every step of that process. Doug, in his books, has outlined this vision of the future, not only answering the question, can hemp save the world, but showing us exactly how we can go about it. Speaking of saving things, uh, if you want to help keep this podcast going, if you want to make sure that this ongoing project to preserve and share true cannabis 
history with the world goes on indefinitely. We really, really listen to my voice. Really (laughs) need you to come out and support us on Patreon. And it's very easy to do. All you have to do is go to Great Moments in Weed History dot com and you can give us as little as a dollar a month you can be five times as cool as that and put five on it or for a little more you can get a signed copy of my book how to smoke pot properly delivered right to your door best of all you know now you've already heard me say that there is a new episode of this podcast every weed on Weedness Day or every week on Wednesday if you want to be a square about it. But that is only true for our supporters on Patreon because wherever you're listening to this episode, you're only going to get one every other weed, every other Weedness Day, because every other weed on every other Weedness Day, I know this is getting confusing, but bear with me, we are a Patreon-only show, because that is where we are having the secret Seshes. I shouldn't even be telling you about it. But otherwise, how are you going to know to come and join us on Patreon to get these incredibly cool episodes that I've started doing where I'm actually talking to our supporters on Patreon and we are getting lit from the jump and it is just a more informal chill vibe way to get to know all the cool people who are part of this G-M-I-W-H-P-U, the Great Moments in Weed History podcast universe, which is just becoming more and more of a mutually supportive, cool, engaged community online. We'd love for you to be a part of it. And the biggest thing you get is, first of all, the video version of every single episode. Right now, you can see me holding up this J that you know I'm going to spark up right before the theme song, but you also will get all of these secret sessions, and there are just such cool people in this community. So far, I've talked with a bud tender. I've talked with a medical doctor who teaches classes in cannabis. We have a cool, weedy conversation coming up with a fiber freak, and uh, I'll leave that where it is for now. You can find out what that is in a couple of weeds on a couple of weedness days from now. Um, But I wanted to highlight a conversation that just posted last weed, our most recent secret sesh, because it really touched my heart and, and really reminded me of why this podcast is worth um, let's just say the time and effort and love that I'm putting into it. Um, the rewards are not always as financial as I would like them to be. It's something that I'm working on. Um, but when I realize that people like my guest for this most recent sesh, John, are out there listening and feeling a connection to this community. I know that it is all worth it, no matter what else. And, you know, first and foremost, this was an incredible secret sesh, just because John is a super chill, funny, and cool person to share some weed with. John also shared with me and all of us in on the secret sessions the extremely inspiring story of how he became a public advocate for medical cannabis and in particular for those who, like himself, 
have a condition called Friderich's ataxia. Now, according to the National Organization for Rare Disorders, Friderich's ataxia, or FA as he calls it, is a genetic neurodegenerative movement disorder that affects about one in every 50,000 people. John was kind enough to share with us on the secret sesh uh, not only how cannabis helps him treat and manage the condition, but he also recalled for us the truly great moment when he himself spoke out for the first time loud and proud at a public hearing held by the FDA to tell the government and to tell everyone in his community how much cannabis has helped him in his life, in his treatment of this condition, and just makes him happy. So the years went by, and, like, I kept smoking and, like, kept hiding and, and like, lying to my doctors about it. They would always say, keep doing what you're doing. So in my mind, it was like, well... This doctor just told me to keep smoking weed. And let's go to 2017, which will bring us to uh, really the the main great moment of this mm-hmm. rambling story. <laughs> no, we are you are on point, and I am I am. <laughs> hold on one second, because if we're getting to our great moment, I gotta. Yeah. All right, lay it on me. So in 2017, the FDA, uh, they're having a, like, a patient-focused meeting. So all day, like, people gave stories about their lives and, and the pain that FA is causing them. And then it was up to me, my turn, with the microphone. And uh, so I, I gave a, a talk about weed. Oh, it can really help. And in specific ways. What 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 were those ways? What what, what um, are the ways that you find that helps? Well, I actually uh, let's read read the uh, the speech right now. Perfect. This is a recreation of a great moment in weed history. I'm I'm thrilled. Hi, I'm John Sarnsek. I currently do a lot to manage my symptoms. The one I want to talk about today is cannabis. The benefits are wide-ranging. Everything from neuropathic pain relief to muscle relaxing to emotional and mental restoration. Cannabis helps with sleep. Anyone with the FA will tell you, if you're not well-rested, the ataxia is more pronounced. It can reduce dependency on antidepressants, painkillers, and other potentially harmful prescription drugs. Medical marijuana has been legalized in 29 states plus D.C. Yet there hasn't been an investigation into its benefits with F.A. It's not a cure, but we could be using a specifically cultivated strain that targets a specific symptom right now. With the doctor's guidance, this stuff can help us 
We need to know how. We need to know how. We need a scientific investigation. Thank you. You can hear the rest of my conversation with John and get access to all the secret sessions if you will just join us on Patreon at Great moments in weedhistory.com we're trying to get to 420 supporters by april 20th 420 of this year so join us now and you can get in on all the secret sessions you can go back and watch video versions of dozens of episodes and you can be a part of this growing family all at great moments in weedhistory.com and if you don't have five to put on it, or even one to put on it. I feel like you got one to put on it. Come on, man. Come on, lady. Come on, non-binary stoner. Let's. I'm passing the hat here. It's that uncomfortable moment where the band's been playing for a while, and now we're passing the hat and looking you right in the eye. Are, are, are you digging what we're putting out? If so, we need a little of that green energy. But if you don't have it right now, Please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, tell your friends. That all helps us spread the word because we are, of course, uh, shadow banned and regular banned and double banned, and we're on triple secret probation with this podcast. The world does not want this information about this plant out there, so we need you to help spread the word. Now, a couple of listener notes before we get into this episode with Doug Fine. First, uh, maybe obvious, maybe uh, new information to you, but hemp and cannabis are actually the exact same plant. They are just bred for different purposes. You know, we tend to refer to cannabis or weed as the medicinal, psychoactive uh, strains of the cannabis plant, while strains of cannabis that were grown for industrial uses like uh, fiber or seed production for food, those are known as hemp. And hemp was outlawed in the United States federally in 1937, right along with cannabis. Check out our episode about uh, ultimate human paraquat Harry J. Anslinger for more on that story. But the good news, at least for hemp, is that in 2018, the U.S., Farm Bill officially ended federal prohibition of hemp with a THC level of 0.3% or less. So that is a huge sea change that has led to a big movement of hemp growing, a lot of it for these sort of CBD-rich cannabis that you can uh, access yourself no matter where you live. And of course, we always recommend doing so from our supporters at Tweedle Farms. That's tweedlefarms.com. You can get CBD-rich cannabis, gummies, tinctures, topicals, all farm direct. And if you use the promo code Great Moments, you will get a really nice discount from our friends up in Oregon. But in the meantime... The in-between time, the green time, uh, for today's episode, I've got a nice, long, flowering sativa strain, because that is the kind of cannabis I associate with my friend Doug Fine, because that's what we were smoking when we first uh, met and uh, became friends at the Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam, I'm thinking more than a decade 
ago. Time highs when you're having fun, kind of like time flies when you're having fun. Uh, and shout out to Doug for being uh, such a great advocate of this plant and a good friend to me. I greatly enjoyed catching up with him. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation as well, except and unless and with the single caveat that you might be saying to yourself right now with your inside voice, very quietly, hoping nobody realizes like, oh, this is about to start and I'm not high at all. I have, I don't even have anything ready to blaze. And I know we're about to hear the theme song and we'll be in the episode and everybody's going to be lit and I'm going to be way behind it. And I, I, I'm, I'm kind of forgetting. Don't worry. You know what you got to do. Well, first of all, just take a deep breath. That feels good. Even without the weed. And then hit pause. Easy peasy. And use that time at your leisure to roll yourself a joint like the one I'm holding up to the camera. Or to split a blunt. Or to pack a bong. Or to endabulate a dab. Or to eat as much edibles as you think it's wise to eat. And then wait an hour and a half before you eat any more. No matter how you get that weed into you, the one thing I can promise you is that when you are ready, we'll be ready for another great moment in weed history. Doug, fine. It is a pleasure to have you with us here at Great Moments in Weed History. I'm excited to catch up with you after a few years. Welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Even if we didn't have this long history, I, it would be an honor to be on this show. So thank you for having me. From the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. Yeah, right on. Uh, more goats than people, I think, in your life, probably, on the ranch. Definitely. More goats and people and the people that i see and this is one of the keys are generally the people i want to see uh, it sounds like success uh by <laughs> by a good <laughs> metric you. so we want to talk on this episode about the history of hemp and i also want to talk about the vision for a hemp-based future that you first outlined in your book hemp bound but let's start with the hemp present where are you at in your hemp journey right now thanks that's a great place to start and it is almost time to start as we're recording kind of what in new mexico high desert is late winter already so it's uh thinking about getting the goat poop on the soil and all that personally but higher altitude one of the things i'm most excited about in hemp is a variety that I've been developing for about six years has been shown in, in a New Mexico State University study to be phytoremediative, that is soil cleaning, uh, cleaning up uh, radioactivity in soil. I'd say the other thing that I really feel great about personally in hemp is cultivating for food. I'm trying to demonstrate hemp these days as part of polyculture, just another plant in the garden as it's always been for most of the last, you know, 12,000 years, well before 
sedentary agriculture had fully set in. Um, anthropologists call hemp a camp follower, the type of seed that was stuck in a pouch to be planted at seasonal camps because it was valuable for uh, everything from strong fibers for sandals and roofs to the superfood in the seed to ego, you know, minimization and uh, relaxation from the healthy flowers. So it, it goes way back. And I love uh, growing for food specifically. I like basically having enough hemp seeds uh, when the deer leave our small home hemp garden alone uh, for a family of four for, for the year. You know, I think there's a lot of talk now about hemp as high CBD hemp that people are uh, using as more of a medicine. Uh, but you're kind of going back to uh, the Jack Herrer idea that hemp can go well beyond that and and you know save the world if you will and that harkens back to our much older relationship with this plant as humans so you know in your study of the plant where do you see that hemp human relationship beginning and let's kind of chart the evolution and then the de-evolution of uh, human hemp relations. Everything we're going to be talking about, about hemp, I hope folks will also just map onto this idea that instead of petroplastics and other kind of toxics, you know, humanity was able to function for a long time only with what the earth provided. And even through industrial revolution and everything, plastics were 20th century. But in the beginning, we t touched on a little bit earlier, the camp follower idea, the fact that there were value, a, a series of valuable seeds that people all over the world carried and developed and cultivated even before well, the arguable misstep of sedentary agriculture and its successors, you know, kings and lawyers and stuff or whatever, betraying a personal bias. David, I, I think we're supposed to be semi-nomadic shamanistic uh, primates, but uh, <laughs> but cannabis was part of it even when we were that. And, and in our body, we are, of course, because of the receptors. So we're great friends with this plant. We love this plant. It keeps us healthy and it makes great roofs and, and, and sandals. So it's always been in our lives. I'm really lucky uh, to be making a TV show based on my latest book, American Hemp Farmer. And I got invited to Mount Vernon to film the first hemp planting at Mount Vernon, George Washington's estate in a hundred years. And it was fun filming in like all these colonial clothes and harvesting with a really sharp sickle. I cut my thumb and all that kind of stuff. Um, but bottom line, no bones about it. They, they are proud. The people in charge of George Washington's legacy are proud of the, uh, the importance that hemp played in this founding father's life. You mentioning Mount Vernon and George Washington as a as a hemp farmer, of course, uh, brings to light one cultural touchstone, which is that scene in Dazed and Confused, where the uh, perhaps most dazed and most confused of all the characters is factually right on when he's talking about how uh, George Washington grew that shit at Mount Vernon, man. George Washington, man, he was in a cult. And the cult was in the aliens, man. You didn't know that? No. Oh, man, they were way into that type of stuff, man. George toked weed. Man. Absolutely, George toked weed. Are you kidding me, man? He grew fields of that stuff, yeah. man. That's what I'm talking man. about. Fields. He grew that shit up in Mount Vernon, man. Mount Vernon, man. He grew it all over the country, man. He had people growing it all over the country, you know? The whole country back then was getting hot. Let me tell you, man, because he knew. He was on to something, man. He knew that it would be a good cash crop for the southern states, man. So he grew fields of it, man. But you know what? Behind every good man, there's a woman. 
and that woman was Martha Washington, man. And every day George would come home, she'd have a big fat bowl waiting for him, man, when he'd come in the door, man. She was a hip, a hip, hip lady. And then I think the other uh, presence in in the revival of hemp, at least in, in America, that we really should recognize is the the writing and the work and the advocacy of Jack Herrer, Rhymes with Terror. Uh, we have a whole episode of this program about him, so I'll just touch on that. But the chord that he struck was not talking about the future of hemp so much as uncovering the obscured history of it. And so kind of to people who may not understand that history, how was hemp being used prior to prohibition? Food and fiber are two huge things. Before I talk about maybe one or two of my favorite kind of ancient and modern applications for each of those, I just want to do that nod to Jack Herrer that you mentioned, because like everyone, I had and read and enjoyed Emperor. And so it's really, it is incredible how the truths of that book have held up. And it's also, even to me as a journalist, what other histories get obscured, as you put it, you know, it was a eye-opener. But as for uh, the fiber, you know, for the last several thousand years, it's been the workaday clothing and the workaday uh, paper. So draft, but not final copy of the Declaration of Independence. Farming clothes, but not what was worn receiving company or whatever. Switching to food, how could people not have always eaten hemp? One time, uh, an Iranian graduate student told me that when he was growing up, hot roasted hemp seeds kind of in like a wrap, paper wrapping with some salt and oil on top was the go-to like food going to soccer practice. You know, they're not, they weren't in, in his day, they weren't ripping open Doritos. They were going to the stand and buying it. Um, and in Persian, it means Shah Dinah, it means the king of seeds. I love the superfood side of it so much. It's can be 30 plus percent protein. And I can tell you just these few plants that I grow at home, they're just these giant, they look like, uh, evergreen bushes they're so dense and so much seed a family can really jack up its protein and it's really great in chicken feed goat feed all our livestock you know i've been filming all that for the show too like our livestock loves it a cool modern use is the phytoremediation you know i'll stop there and just say it's a major thing the earth soil needs to be cleaned up from pesticides herbicides synthetic chemicals saline in in pumped water in places like california and and uh hemp is just a remarkable tool for that yeah that really gets into the hemp can save the world framing that jack Herr brought into the discussion and and backed up with a lot of the historical record and i think got people really excited about this plan again of course it took uh, a a lot of activism to enact those changes. And and something else interesting that you touched on, I want to highlight is, you know, just as we have different strains, different genetic varieties of cannabis that we smoke or, you know, use to get high or however you want to ingest it, there was this long, long tradition of different varietals of hemp and the breeding of those varietals would be a very similar process to creating sour diesel uh, because you liked its property. So what do you know of that of that history and how much of that was lost to prohibition? All over the world, just about. 
people developed specific varieties for their specific needs and you can develop them pretty quickly. Farming, you know, there's a, obviously a huge spiritual component to farming and I have really become attached to it and talking about it and writing about it because farming is a different thing. It requires presence every day. And one thing I can tell you with as much certainty as anyone could say in this life is if you are there in your field present, loving your plants and, and loving the soil year round. I mean, this is the time of year where I gather mycelium to, to build up the beneficial fungus and the soil from native fungus, not from what my friend Chris Trump calls a bugs in a jug ordered in a plastic jug from wherever. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's better than toxic monoculture, but uh, you know, build your own microbes. Um, so the the plants i don't consider myself an, an expert farmer but the plants really give back and they respond to what is being asked you know and you can grow a variety that is a very strong promising fiber and a huge seed producer some would say okay but then that can also be a cannabinoid plant i use the seeded flower from the variety that i've been developing in a commercial product and it's about cannabinoid ratio it's not about milligrams per unit it's about what the natural plant is providing and i love it i find it to be what i want it to be which is a relaxing bath oil and massage oil there is without a doubt going on throughout history all over distinct northern africa versus um uh versus let's say uh europe or china but everybody is developing cannabis as they as they need it and often there's a variety that that does it all because what we talk about as the hemp cannabis split is it's such an arbitrary and recent phenomenon. It's a not, it's really a non-issue. The plant has always been one plant. So Kentucky farmers in the thirties, right? They're basically mainly growing for farm for fiber, but was the flower doing something? If you smoked it, probably my guess would be six to 8% THC. Nobody was worried about THC level or considering that hemp to be something different from cannabis. I'm interested in what you think about this theory, David. I'll throw it back to you here. People older than you and I, who are, were friends with the cannabis, let's say in cannabis plant in the 60s and 70s, I, I get this commonly. I don't know if you hear this. Uh, yeah, no, it's wonderful going into these dispensaries and getting 28%, 32% flower sensimia. But there was something about the seeded flowers. It was less edgy. There was a sense of social relate. And some of this has to do with sativa versus indica or whatever. So what it occurred to me when I keep hearing these stories is maybe just as a woman's body, a human's woman body, a human woman's body changes hormonally when, when pregnant, fertilized hemp flower might not be soaring in THC, but might have that natural balance that humans have selected for, for thousands of years. Is that going to be commercially viable? I don't know. But do you, would you, let's put it this way for a direct question. Would you rather burn sticky sensi any day or could you see the value of smoking seeded flour? Uh, I've smoked a lot of seeded flour, most of it in my younger years. I certainly came up on, you know, compressed brick weed coming out of Mexico and shout out to all the farmers down there, especially <laughs> of the uh, mid nineties. Thank you very much. You know, not knocking it. Uh, I was grateful to have it um, and have warm memories of it. And, and even more recently um, on a trip to Costa Rica, I, I was blessed with, um, you know, what was being grown up in the mountains by, you know, and essentially the indigenous people of, Costa Rica and you know uh, you know it you don't need a third party 
certifier to tell you it's organic because they're certainly not buying a bunch of chemicals you know and i find that that cannabis extremely pleasant i think you know another aspect of it is to grow sin semilla which means spanish for without seeds you're preventing the as you said the fertilization you're 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 present preventing this natural process in the plant's life and so it's continuing to produce resin in hopes of capturing pollen from the air so to be a bit crude these are the female plants that we uh consume for medicine and for psychoactive fun they're getting you know increasingly sexually frustrated in a way and we are uh reaping that uh that uh, that oil that that uh you know psychoactive element of the plant i i could certainly see the case that um you know that might give you a different a different experience i think what's really interesting to me is a study just came out and i'm going to be pretty general cuz i don't want to misrepresent it but it that in essence said sun grown cannabis has a more diverse and representative uh chemical composition of what the plant produces whereas cannabis the sa- and this was a study where they took uh genetically identical seeds and grew out the plants outdoors under the sun and indoors under an artificial light and potency aside because you know if something's twice as potent but you take two puffs instead of one you know it's that simple it's not uh <laughs> as important as people make it out but the idea that sun-grown cannabis which people older than ourselves you know my my grandparents ate organic food not because they were trendy but because there was no non-organic food and uh the people of the uh you know the the cannabis enthusiasts of the 19 uh certainly you know 1980 or before it was all sun grown and i and i do think that um you know now just very recently we have some science to show what I think people of our uh, orientation towards the plant have long said. You know, this plant evolved to eat sunlight, not to eat a narrow spectrum of artificial light. So I think that this is, it's all very uh, complicated. And I think anybody who's never smoked uh, seeded weed, uh, don't turn your nose up at it, you know. Uh, you probably shouldn't be getting it at a dispensary for the prices that you're paying. But if you were uh, just growing some plants outdoors and they got seeded, um, you're going to have an enjoyable uh, time picking the seeds out and, and you're going to have something good to smoke. To, to shift gears a little, what what I loved about your book, Hempbound, when it came out, uh, for for me, I felt like the hemp activism up until that point uh, in the Jack Herrer tradition was really educational in terms of this obscured history and the uses of the plant that were documented but later denied. And of course, we look at the film Hemp for Victory that the federal government made to promote hemp growing as part of the World War II effort. So decades after they outlawed the plant. But in your book, you outlined a vision of the future of hemp. So not can 
uh, hemp save the world, but what would a world that embraced hemp as a means to alleviating these self-inflicted uh, calamities of our of our existence on the planet? Perhaps you can take us through how you got involved in that sort of future casting approach to hemp and where that led you. Thanks for that. While I was researching an earlier book called Too High to Fail about cooperatives uh, of cannabis farmers in the Emerald Triangle, which was fun and bedding there, moving moving the family out for a year to the Redwoods. While I was researching that book, the most progressive of the farmers in the in the Mendocino uh, sort of community with which I was embedded, um, we're talking about centralizing for a regional group of farmers processing, which would be really easy for a lot of reasons. Let, you know, one inspection, you know what I mean? And uniformity in terms of if people are using certain strain names and professional equipment and all that kind of stuff, but, um, uh, good accounting, all of that business. And so while we were kind of having this conversation, one of the farmers said, and by the way, nobody does anything with the stocks. There's the, there's stocks like any kind of cannabis implant they're just there after the harvest. So that spurred me to start really looking first at cannabis implant other than the flower, other than this billion dollar market that I was writing about in the book Two Out of Fail. So that led to what became the book Hemp Bound. And yeah, you're right. It was not so much that even all the applications were so futuristic. It was just re- rediscovering them had huge promise. So a pretty a huge amount of carbon emissions come from today's petrochemical based construction and building industry. Hemp has always been built with there's thousand year old hemp houses in 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 Ireland. There's bees that bring male hemp pollen back to the hive to pack it into the uh, entranceways so they have really strong integrity because of a lot of traffic. So it's it's obviously it's a great building material and um I never leave uh, home without a little hunk of hemp creek because I love talking about hemp building. Um, so that's just one example. Um, if you want to get on the tech end, uh, hemp-based supercapacitors for next-generation batteries, weaning us from environmentally uh, degrading and, and often human rights violating um, rare earth mineral harvests, um, getting us into next-generation energy is something that's important in my life. So really, in a sentence, what I was going for when I wrote Hempbound was the idea that regional communities, as opposed to stock market traded commodities or federal bureaucracies re- regulating for 300 million people in our country or a billion in China or whatever, re- actually regional communities controlling their own economies through various modes um, that include uh, this concept of the multiplier effect, keeping more elements of production for any industry, but using hemp as sort of the spearhead since it was returning back from oblivion right so if you have farmers in north dakota that are growing thousands and thousands of acres for say superfood seed they might be part of a cooperative where everybody is benefiting from a centralized production facility and that's to say everybody according to cooperative principles meaning it's a it's a regional thing it's not going to shareholders somewhere else so there's actually a reason to be invested in communities so there's a philosophy that goes along with the natural kind of healing connotations, healing of the nation connotations that cannabis hemp has. So that was re- extremely fun to write that high altitude book, Hemp Bound, and besides hemp green and supercapacitors, 
there was, you know, animal feed was discussed and elements like that. And then finally uh, that book came out and, and a lot of people started asking me, okay, well, what do I do if I want to do it? Like my father and mother are getting on in years and I'm Missouri. We have 60 acres in Missouri. And I don't know, I want to be a graphic designer. I didn't want to grow GMO soy, but which I get that all kind of stuff all the time. So I um, wrote and published in 2020, 420, 2020 is when it came out, the book American Hemp Farmer, which just runs through a season of regenerative farming, focusing on like 10 to 20 acres but it could be mapped out for huge section farmers like i said in the dakotas or the montana or down to backyard gardening it was really kind of like a day in the life of each step of the season so for planting day almost every time i've ever planted with any any kind of mechanized planter there's complications and uh so i just wrote about that kind of as a rookie like how much of you know 12 percent of your planting day is planting and the rest is trying to get the the this this uh, you know time saver thing to actually work so that's that that's american informer but i also talked about potential business models like cooperatives not tearing down any kind of economic institutions that have been in place it's just always economics evolve and evolving to this idea of digital age thinking but community-minded focus regional focus the goal of every enterprise is not to sell out some hedge fund it's not to go public it's not to be the Kmart of hemp seed oil or ganja. It's how about a really lucrative 18 person farm to product ganja company that, yeah, what I'd love to see is a regionalization of the economy with hemp cannabis leading it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, it's important to note too, when we, when we talk about energy specifically, there's the environmental aspects of the ways we're sourcing uh, energy now, which are largely very decentralized. Oil, you know, is is difficult to obtain increasingly, but always has been and has always consolidated the economy around it. You know, uh, Standard Oil in the day was one of the first trusts that had to be broken up. Uh, and of course, today, you know, incredible consolidation in the oil and gas industry with these huge multinational corporations. When you flick the light on in your home, that energy in essence could be coming from so, so far away, but also so much of the conflict on our planet right now is driven by the scarcity of these existing forms of energy and when something is scarce there's a, a disproportionate value to it and when there's enough value on something unfortunately people are willing to go to war to obtain it and secure it and to maintain uh, their power over it and so in essence the idea of these localized hemp economies is not just that it would produce energy in a much more environmentally friendly way, but that it would de-escalate conflict around things like oil that are currently, you know, driving our, our economic activity on the planet. Oil and gas, certainly, but also uh, I live in uh, close to the mining, a lot of mining industry stuff, and those are, you know completely just monstrous anonymous conglomerates so yeah we got to take we it's it's really it's got to fight for your right to party david who are some of the interesting people you've met in charting this new movement towards uh, a return of hemp one of the most exciting 
elements for me is when I've met independent farmers, whether they're from farming families or new return first time farmers who actually are implementing this model of farm to product, hustling how they have to, to get it out to the world, but regeneratively done all the revenue from the company staying within their community. um, And then they're taking it to the streets, whether it's farmers markets, CSAs, food cooperatives, they all either write and send me an email or I'll meet them at conventions. And I'll think this is a thing. It's not a dream. This is actually happening. As long as you can stick with it these days, stick-to-itiveness is a, a, I don't want to say a rare trait, but it's such an important trait. People can't believe, oh, you're still doing that? You were talking about that three years ago. I was like, yeah, doing that forever actually so you know <laughs> yeah well we we talk about uh propaganda by the word uh, a lot and then there's propaganda by the deed which is where this journey ultimately took you to plant uh your own hemp and 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 to become an essence of working model of this vision that you've been championing. So uh, moving uh, into your next book, give me what what is the life? How are you living right now? And how is uh, hemp integrated into that? I and my family are not food independent, but that's really what we do. We live here trying to inch towards food security as a family and and then spread that message through books and and televisions and and television and speaking growing your food growing your plants growing your herbs is a obviously it's a human right without a doubt and even though any limits on home cultivation of anything is a brooch on human rights for folks who may be uh hearing this and wanting to you know be active for final legalization in their state or country home culture in addition to any kind of dispensaries and commercials Home cultivation with no records, no filing, no government doesn't know anything about it of a certain number of plants is an imperative. There is no legalization unless it includes full right to home cultivation. That's not something that can be taken away. And on that subject of home cultivation, just tying up one quick loose end. I loved what you were saying about how much you appreciated the the um the pressed Mexican that you would get and that was available to you when you were discovering this plant that humans have enjoyed forever. And I love the idea of this middle ground. Since I live in New Mexico, I speak to people who are multi-generational, you know, from really from here. And they're always like, can you get us some cush seeds, you know, man, grow some dank indigo. I'm like, dude, the native seeds here are fantastic. You just, you know, grow them nicely. It's not, it would end up as pressed seeded Mexican if that's how you treated it. But if you grow it and love it, it's wonderful sativa it's a and it's a climate for sativa too and outdoors you know like you said earlier thank heavens for all the ganja farmers who got us ganja during prohibition by any route and come on come on if you locked up your kid and never let your kids see the sunlight you'd get they'd take your kids away it's free i love your uh uh zoom background here of this three-dimensional outdoor the sun's free and that's you know that's what your plants want we would i would never want to eat any food that i um, grew indoors. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and I think that is an important point. You know, that was it, the only the move to grow cannabis indoors was a factor of prohibition. And um, you know, if you have come to believe that quality cannabis is indoors because of how it looks 
or maybe how even it smells. Um, there's real science to say, you know, it's more about appearances than about the chemical composition of the plant, which is what you're actually bringing into your uh, human body. So the old ways in, 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 in so many things, the wisdom of generations past is not to be dismissed. And I think that's a lesson we're collectively learning uh, when it comes to cannabis in all forms. And I would say maybe what uh, excites you the most right now uh, around hemp? Is there any specific project uh, or or movement that, that you think uh, points towards towards the future. I love that. I'll, I'll uh, answer about a couple of personal projects I'm excited about, but first I'll just say trend wise, one of the things I appreciate is that the industry appears to be moving beyond the short play of, of cannabinoids and CBD and thinking more about superfood and fiber applications. Um, there's fiber uh, um, projects in multiple States and in, in the U S progress on obvious things like building code stuff um, for hemp. Anytime there's a new material, there's building code stuff. And then, uh, likewise, uh, food safety approved stamp of approval stuff uh, with regard, especially to things like livestock feed, is a laborious project that that some good folks are involved in, and it's a, it's an important one. Personally, I haven't sought out indigenous projects, but almost all of the advising and consulting work that I do has been done with um, both Native American tribes and indigenous communities around. Uh, the world. So I'm excited that it kind of in the hopper and the just getting going now are some projects on soil building and soil cleanup and seasonal agriculture in Alaska. Uh, yeah, military legacy cleanup in Alaska. And um, just recently, I'm back from a re- uh, first field visit and soil testing, a really exciting project in the Yucatan in Mayan country. And one of the funnest parts about that for me is that obviously being successful agricultural econ- economy for you know millennia, there's Mayan words for all the different kinds of soil that they have there. They have a lexicon for soil and what's good to grow where. Um, so it's fun to be both introducing hemp, but also to be experiencing the local indigenous uh, crops, the bean, various beans and, and jicama and stuff like that. Plus, I mean, awesome to be working in the Yucatan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, to, that, that brings me to... Uh, something I kind of wanted to bring things home with uh, after this fascinating discussion, you know, and I encourage people to really uh, delve into your books to truly understand the, the, the transformative potential of, as you say, not just cannabis and hemp, but uh, a reimagining of our food systems and our energy systems. You know, obviously, most people listening to this podcast are not uh, uh, constitutionally or or economically going to be able to just immediately uh, jump in and, and start growing a lot of hemp. But uh, I feel like the message "smoke weed every day" had had a great spokesperson and has has uh, gotten out there. But uh, make the case to bring us home for eat hemp every day. Hemp is a genuine superfood with upwards of thirty percent protein and um, what many many nutritionists consider the ideal ratio of omega-9, 6, and 3 fatty acids. It's also very high in minerals that it's hard to find otherwise 
in in um, vegetarian foods in particular, such as magnesium and selenium, and or a, a gamma linoleic acid, which is difficult to find in any foods at all, which is a uh, documented anti-inflammatory compound, um, and we kind of live in an inflamed society. So for those nutritional reasons. I suggest eating hemp every day and I sure eat hemp every single day. Whole seeds that we grow here, but hemp hearts from our organic farmers in our Southwest region and, um, you know, hemp seed oil that's been pressed from crops that I've grown with infused with some cannabinoids is I basically, that's my commercial product. And I use that every day in, uh, in my coffee and tea and stuff. So uh, I'm always eating it, but as important as the nutritional elements are, and this is not just hemp, not just food, all of our lives, the decisions that we make when we are, as you say, not the farmer, but someone who's purchasing it, it makes all the difference in the world. If you decide that you're going to actually have fun and go to that farmer's market or that food co-op to find who's your regional cultivator of a hemp seed or a CBD product or whatever it is, ganja, whatever, as opposed to saying, you know what, it'll be seven cents a pound cheaper at a corporate box store. Those kind of decisions in our lives, I think, are the decisions that may make the difference between humanity thriving versus not as we head into the post-petroleum era. Wise words. And, uh, you know, another thing we like to say here on Great Moments in Weed History is smoke the cannabis you want to see in the world, uh, which sounds counterintuitive to light something on fire in order to... uh, (laughs) preserve its existence but of course if you are sourcing the cannabis that you are ingesting and inhaling and rubbing on yourself uh from the kind of family farms that are responsible members of their community that are growing in an environmentally uh responsible or even regenerative way then that's just going to bring more of that cannabis into the world and so i will add an addendum and i will say eat the hemp you want to see in the world as well. Uh, I'm getting a big thumbs up from our guest. Doug, always a pleasure uh, to spend any time with you and especially uh, to share your journey and your insights with everyone here at Great Moments in Weed History. I, I got to ask you our final question in your uh, long Uh, journey with this plant in all forms. What stands out to you? We say great moments in weed history happen to all of us. Uh, Where would you so far say uh, would be a highlight of your weed journey? Thank you for that. And and it's, it's uh, great to be on the show and um, it was, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I've been a fan of the, of the show. David. So, um, and, and I'm glad that I've known you now for probably 10 years or more. That's really, it's hard to pick, but it, it, it was surprising to me when Dean Norton, the head of, uh, director of horticulture at Mount Vernon asked me to guess what George Washington's most important and profitable use of hemp was. And I must've guessed 20 wrong answers. His number one application for hemp was fiber woven into fishnets that his boats would move across the Potomac and he made the equivalent of today of millions of dollars in sturgeon and other fish that he harvested with um, hemp fishing nets in the Potomac. So learning that um, bit of history, bit of the cannabis plant, how valuable this plant is, it's the kind of thing that empowers one to go and talk about the health of this plant and, and biomaterial based economy in a, 
in a Baptist church or, you know, in a Hindu community across the pond or whatever, you, you know, um, you have history and truth on your side. And thank you for continuing to shout it out all the time. That's what we're here for. Oh, Doug, thank you. And to everyone, thank you for joining us for this episode. And we will see you next weed for an all new episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.